Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 10, and in here, that a Sermon on the Mount Christian is not supposed to have anxiety or fear in any scenario. continuing in our series to the book of Matthew. So if you could open up in your Bible to Matthew chapter 8. We'll be looking at the next story in this. Matthew 8. So let's read just five verses, Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly, a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, as we look at discipleship tested, as we see here in this vignette, a a beautiful story of discovery that I hope that as we look at this, that you will powerfully show us our own hearts. If we are also of little faith, or if we are of a great faith uh, that, that Jesus sometimes marvels over, I pray that we would discover our own hearts, our own faith, and also discover the answer to this question the disciples pose in verse 27. Who can this be? that even the winds and the sea obey him. In the name of the one who calms the sea, amen. Okay, so to understand this section here, and keep your finger here, because we're going to look at this pretty carefully, we have to remember the previous section. So I gave a message last time on Jesus and that amazing story of discipleship that he, he teaches. It just got up on YouTube a couple days ago. So if you missed it, I hope you can watch it. So if you remember from the previous story in verse 18, what did Jesus say in verse 18? He said, when he saw this great multitude around him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. So he's, he's just healed a bunch of people. And as is often the case, after he heals a bunch of people, a big crowd gathers. And he says, all right, time to make a trip. We're going to cross the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember in the story, there's two people from this multitude that raise their hand and say, hey, I want to go with you, Jesus. So the first person was this scholar or this scribe. And Jesus, uh, he doesn't say to this scholar or scribe when he says, I'll go with you. He says, great. That's awesome. I'm going to take care of you. Jesus says, instead, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
he seemingly dissuades this person from coming after him, the scholar or the scribe. And it's like he's telling this scholar, don't expect the, the institutional comforts and structures of the rabbinical world that you're from. And in fact, Jesus promises him a life of insecurity. He promises that the life of Jesus is going to be one where you don't have comfort and ease and security. He says, if you want those things, you got the wrong rabbi, you got the wrong teacher. And then we looked at that title, Son of Man. I think in the interest of time, I'm not going to repeat anything from that because it's all online. We spent a good amount of time unpacking what is meant by that. So go back and listen to that if you haven't. And then similarly, the second story of the second individual, I think I'll also just say, go back and listen to that message. If you have struggles with priorities, go back and listen to that message because Jesus has some brilliant insights into priorities as as those of you who heard that message know. Okay, so now there are those two people and he finally says, okay, time to get in the boat. And I want you to remember that this is Jesus's idea, right? This is Jesus's idea here to get into the boat, cross the boat, and to go across the Sea of Galilee. And in verse 23, who does it say gets into the boat? Disciples. Disciples. Very important. This is, this is the language of discipleship. So we'll unpack that in a little bit more. But what happens in the very next verse, this is Jesus' idea, right? To go across the boat. Disciples get into the boat. It says, a great tempest arises that sinks the boat. Okay, right? So Jesus commanded this. They get in the boat. The storm starts pretty dramatically, it seems like, and the boat starts to sink. And then it says, but Jesus is sleeping. (laughs) So this is all Jesus' idea here, right? So we got to keep that in mind. Now, if we put ourselves into the sandals of the disciples, we've got to be thinking here, like, what's the deal? What, what's going on? Jesus told us to get into this boat. We get into this boat to cross the sea. And all of a sudden this big windstorm kicks up. We're sink, we're sinking. I'm soaking wet. It looks like we're going to die. And the person who had this bright idea, he's sleeping right over there. Uh, this does not seem fair. This doesn't seem okay. And so as I think it's very reasonable. They wake up, Jesus, and they say, Lord, save us. We're perishing. Okay, so, so like, when when I see that setup, I think, okay, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. But then Jesus gets up and chides them. Jesus is not like, oh, good thing you you called out to me in, in prayer here. He chides them and says, why are you afraid? And says that they lack faith. What, what's this about? Like, how is this fair? How is this reasonable at all that this whole thing, which is Jesus's idea, that gets them into trouble, they ask him a perfectly reasonable request, and now they're being chided. So what's that about? We'll have to answer that. <clears throat> then Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves, and then a great calm appears. Before there was a great tempest, and now there's a great calm. And then the people on the boat are amazed and say, who can this be that commands even the wind and the waves? Okay, so that's the basic story. Simple story. Most of us, probably all of us in this room, have have read the story, know the story. I'm going to make five points here 
based on this passage that I think are, are, are very uh, profound and very potentially very transformative. All right, first point is that discipleship comes from growth through trial. Discipleship comes from growth through trial. Okay, so let's go back to the scene. So, so Jesus has just healed a bunch of people, right? And I see him kind of scanning the crowd. He's looking around. There's, we don't know how many people are there. I picture, I don't know, 50, 100 people, something like that. Everyone's amazed. He's, just, he's healed all these people. Uh, Got to be a very impressive scene. And I'm thinking that most people are thinking like, I want to I see some more. I want to hear some more. Who's this person? But instead, what Jesus does is he wants people to get out of their comfort zone. And their comfort zone is dry land. For most of us, that's the case. And he says, let's get into a boat now. Now, boats are where people get seasick. We were just in Florida and took a boat ride. And I think we had, our family gets easily seasick. Um, uh, I think three people were vomiting on this boat ride. Uh, Right? Was it three or four? Three? Three. Uh, Boats are not places where where, um, I particularly enjoy going on to because they're just kind of not very stable. Boats get lost at sea. Boats get, boats get capsized. But Jesus is saying, enough, time to get in the water. The water is where you're really going to learn. You know how when you first get into a boat, when you first get out on a kayak or a boat, the part that I, I just don't like it is that wobble. Right? Like you just get in there and you're like, whoa, like you just, <laughs> right? And there's something about that, that wobble, that insecurity that reminds me of how, how much I don't like boats. You have to be careful. You're not going to tip over. You lose your stability. Water is just a dangerous place. But it's also a transformative place. Going all the way back to Genesis 1, if you're, I'm sure we all remember this, the spirit broods, he hovers over the water, and he brings forth life and structure from what's formless and void. So right now, if I were to ask you, where are you? Are you on the land? Are you clinging to the land? Are you saying, I want to hold on to what's, what's firm? Or are you following Jesus into the boat? Are you wanting to stand on what's secure or on what's wobbling? One of the most common themes of the New Testament is that when you enter into discipleship, you enter into a, a constant set of trials. Paul, when he d- first establishes the churches in Galatia, this is in Acts 13 or 14, he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You have more trouble and more problems after becoming a disciple than before. On top of that, even once you make some kind of profession of faith, it's very tempting, it's very easy to, to grab onto and to want to hold on to what is secure. There's, a, there's an expression that, I think, I think this is a reasonably common expression, a fair weather friend, you know what a fair weather friend is? A fair weather friend is somebody who 
They're a good friend when things are easy, but when times get tough, bye-bye. They go their own way. One of the things that trials accomplish is they, they determine whether or not you're a fair weather friend or not. So often when things get busy, God gets the leftovers. When things are scary, you lose your trust. When things are hard, you choose your own way. It's your metal through trial that reveals who you are. So whenever you're the most busy, whenever you're the most frightened, whenever you're the most perturbed, that state illuminates who you really are. I'm going to read from the, the New Living. I don't normally use the New Living, but I like how it, it phrases a verse from 1 Peter 1. It says, Trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. That's 1 Peter 1, 7. Did you know that growth and trial are always tethered? They're always tethered in, in the kingdom of God. In James chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, very famous verse, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. He's, he's trying to tell us here, when you face a trial, embrace it, grab onto it, because this is your opportunity for growth. But how many of us really believe that growth and trial are linked? That growth and trial are inseparably tethered? Because, of course, our nature is to cling onto what is comfortable. <clears throat> Whenever I read the story, I think of this, this uh, event that happens. It was the summer of, I see, I see my wife already shaking her head because she knows what I'm going to say. It was the summer of 2018. We were at a family reunion of her family's in, in uh, upstate New York, and it was right, literally right on the shore of Lake Ontario. Lake Ontario is one of the Great Lakes. And it was a very beautiful, very pleasant day. People were kayaking in various boats. And, and so um, I and my three oldest boys who are sitting here, we, we decided to go kayaking. And so we jumped into a kayak and and uh, went out there and went out not too far. But all of a sudden, this wind kicks up and it starts pushing us out. And all of us have paddles and we cannot pull this thing back in. And we are pulling with our mind and we're just seeing the shore get further and further away. The wind keeps kicking up and now there's, there's water coming into the boat. And I'm trying to like scoop out the water with my hands before we sink here. And there's just, we've lost all control of this thing. The storm, the storm gets, gets more intense. I thought we were gonna die. I, I truly thought we were, we were gone because the water was filling up that boat much more rapidly than I could, I could bail it out. And uh, we, were, we were praying and uh, thankfully somebody noticed us. Uh, <laughs> Thankfully, my wife noticed us and uh, 
called the Coast Guard. And uh, on the Great Lakes, they actually have like real Coast Guard boats. And uh, we didn't know it at the time, but there was a a storm that was was brewing brewing and actually on and and upon us. We were right in the midst of it. It felt a lot like this experience here. And uh, thankfully, before the boat sank, the Coast Guard came and rescued us. I, and I remember thinking so well. My wife was expecting our seventh at the time. And I remember thinking, I can't believe if we die now. I'm not even going to see my seventh child. It was right before Sattler was going to open. I was like, oh, I'm not going to get to see Sattler open. I remember thinking about like all the dreams of church and all those things. And thinking, like, is it really going to end this way? And so to this day, we have a code word in our house. We say the word Ontario. It's code for Lake Ontario. And that's a reminder to stop and remember that we have been delivered from death and life is very short and we should be very grateful. So if you ever walk up to us, you can say the word Ontario. We'll all know what that means. And I say that often in our family. It produces a reminder, as I said, of the, the frailty and mortality that we all face. And frankly, it produces... A, a, a gratitude and a life that I think I can risk because I know that my life is a gift. Okay, so as I said, point number one is that discipleship comes from growth through trial. Point number two, trials reveal your character and what you really believe. Trials reveal your character and what you really believe. Okay, so it's really interesting. There's a, there's a word that's used in this passage here the word is, depending on how you pronounce it, seismos or seismos. Uh, so you could probably tell, even if you don't know, know Greek, what that means. It's related to the word seismology. So seismology is the study of earthquakes. And the word is actually used, it's almost always in Koine Greek, it, the word just means earthquake. Uh, but here in verse 24, and it's, it's, it's quite a, an interesting word here when it says, says, suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea. The word there is actually suddenly a great seismos um, arose on the sea. And people debate what exactly this means. The vast majority of the time, like I said, it means a little er- literal earthquake. In fact, in Matthew, the word is used four times. All the other times it is talking about an earthquake. Uh, one of the times it's talking about all the prophecy of the last days, that there's going to be earthquakes. But interestingly, I'll read you the other two instances where it's used. You don't have to turn to this. But one is in, in Matthew 27 at the crucifixion, where it says, When the centurion and those with him who are guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, seismos, and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, This, truly, this was the Son of God. So there was an earthquake around the time of the cross, crucifixion. And then the next chapter in Matthew 28, it says, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came back and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. So there was an earthquake at the cross. There was an earthquake at the resurrection. And there was an earthquake or a tempest here in this story. So I think this is very intentional for for Matthew, that for Matthew, the the earthquake, the seismos, is revelatory. It's where the centurion says, like, truly, this is the son of God. It's where the, the stone is rolled away and people are able to figure out that Jesus rose from the dead. And here, as we'll see, the disciples are able to see their own hearts and also see who Jesus really is. Okay, so 
the 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 quake, the earthquake here is revelatory. It it it's illuminating to where you are. So the previous three miracles, hopefully we all remember that. There were three healing stories. The first one was a leper. The second one was a centurion's servant. And the third one was Peter's mother-in-law. And I could see, I could totally see the disciples saying this. I could totally see the disciples saying, yeah, those people really need you. <laughs> those people really need healing. That dirty leper needs you. The, the Gentiles, they really need you. This woman needs you. But through this quake, through this storm, the disciples encounter the weakness of their own heart. I think it's very impressive that this story is repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're very honest. They tell the world about their lack of faith and their weakness. We remember that Jesus was the one, I've said this a couple of times already, Jesus was the one who told them to go across the sea, right? There's an implicit promise or command, like, hey, go across the sea. And you wonder here if they really believed Jesus's promise. You wonder here when the storm is surging and the waves are filling the boat, you wonder if they're saying like, did Jesus really mean what he said? Does Jesus really have the power? that I think he does? Did they believe, did they really believe that the son of God was going to have his mission fail as they all die on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee? There's a lot of really interesting questions that come up in the midst of a trial, any trial. I know there's a bunch of trials here that we're all facing. It asks, the trials expose the answer to questions like, do you really have your security in God? Do you really believe that God is good? Do you really believe that God cares for you? Do you really believe in the resurrection? Trials reveal who you really are and what you really believe. Not what you say what you believe, but what you really believe. And there's sometimes a a world of difference between the two. Okay, point number three. Fear and anxiety come from weak or absent faith. Fear and anxiety come from weak or absent faith. Okay, so why this rebuke from Jesus? We need to answer that question. Because I said it seems so reasonable, right? Like why would, they, why would they be rebuked? All right, so I've said several times since we have jumped into Matthew 8 that Matthew 8 is amazing because... It is where we see the Sermon on the Mount embodied. We see the Sermon on the Mount lived out. And in fact, you're going to see there's an amazing connection between the Sermon on the Mount and this story that we just read. Okay? So I'm going to read from a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to look at it, you can. Very familiar. Matthew 6. You can probably just flip in your Bible to Matthew 6, 25, where Jesus says this. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon... 
in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Okay, so that expression, little faith, so in Greek, it's oligopistoi. So oligo is, is few, so like an oligonucleotide is a few nucleotides, a small piece of DNA or RNA. Um, pistos, pistoi is, is faithful, so little faith or few faith. That expression is only used, that word, oligopistoi, is only used two times in the whole book of Matthew, only twice. It's used there in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's used in this story right here in Matthew 8.26, when Jesus says, he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? O you oligopistoi. So it's the same word that was in the Sermon on the Mount is now here in Matthew 8. It's pretty neat. So what is Jesus doing? Well, he's using the same word, as I said, from the Sermon on the Mount, and he's basically saying, why are you worrying about your life, your lives? In fact, even when the disciples, Jesus predicts, and we're going to see this in a couple chapters, he's going to tell the disciples they're going to face intense persecution. And Jesus tells them, in fact, when you're, even when you're sitting on trial, don't even worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry what's going to happen to you. Don't worry if you live or die. He says in Matthew 28, I'll read it. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two copper, or not, sorry, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Okay, so in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry what you eat, what you drink. And he says, Oligopistoi, don't, little faith if, you're, if you go down that path. He even says, even if you're on trial for death, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And he says, the little sparrow out there, God watches, that are practically worth nothing, a copper coin. And he says, for you, every single one of your hairs on your head is numbered. And then he says, do not fear, therefore you are more value than the sparrows. So Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 10 and in here, that a Sermon on the Mount Christian is not supposed to have anxiety or fear in any scenario. It's kind of an amazing prospect here because that person is so convinced that God is watching over that person's life. Now, we're not Calvinists here, but we would definitely believe that, that not one hair of your head God would allow to fall without his, his permission. That is really, really important. So what is Jesus showing here, particularly as he's sleeping on the boat? He's showing us like true Sermon on the Mount, no anxiety living here. He's showing us a worry-free existence, an unshakable peace, and a radical contentment. So this is a beautiful example of the Sermon on the Mount in action, where Jesus just isn't worried. He knows that God is going to protect him, watch over him, even when the circumstances aren't particularly rosy. 
There's, there's many places in the Old Testament that make this link. I'll just read this to you. You don't have to turn to it. This is in Proverbs 3.24. It says, when you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence. Isn't that a beautiful proverb? Proverbs 3.24. It's uh, 24 to 26. It says, like, when you lie down, you can sleep sweetly. It's repeated in Job 11.18-19 and Psalm 3.5-6. Very similar idea. And by the way, just as an aside, there's a really interesting connection here where Jesus had just said in the previous story, the son of man has no place to lay his head. At the same time, even though he doesn't have any place to lay his head, he doesn't have, again, some institution or some big hotel or something like that. He can lay his head anywhere. There's a, there's a beautiful paradox, which is that even though he calls disciples to a life of insecurity, they can lay their head down anywhere and find rest. I love that. So the, the disciples didn't really get the Sermon on the Mount at this point. They hadn't really gotten it. They hadn't really got this idea of, don't worry, trust your father. You're more value than the birds. And they didn't imitate Jesus. I think probably the thing that he would most have wanted here is for, for um, we don't know who all is on the boat, but let's say Peter and John was to, was to just get a little blanket, get a little pillow and just lie down next to him and take a nap too. That, that probably would have been the most faith-filled thing that would have pleased him was to imitate him and to say like, wait, hey, Jesus is sleeping. I can sleep, right? This, no, no worries here. In addition, notice what, the, what line the, the disciples use. It's very illuminating if you think about this. They say, save us for we're perishing. Okay, so the save us part I think is admirable, right? It's, it's always good to say, save us. But the second part of the prayer shows that it's really fear and a lack of trust that is motivating this. Because now, if they had said to Jesus, save us because you said we'd make it to the other side, Jesus would have said, I, this is great, great faith. I bless you, you have great faith, I'm going to save you. But they don't do that. They, do you notice that it's actually a fear-based appeal that they have there? They're going to Jesus and save us because we're perishing. They, they don't believe the words that Jesus told them, that they're going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So why do they have little faith? So first, they're not believing the Sermon on the Mount. Two, they're, they're obeying Jesus and following him without really trusting him. So this is, this is a very profound point. Do you know that it's possible to obey God outwardly, but not really trust him inwardly. It's very possible to do that. Very possible. It's possible in any type of church, any type of background for you to be doing certain obedient acts, but not really have your heart be in a place of trust towards God. I remember when I was in college, uh, I was very involved in the Christian fellowship and we went on a retreat once and we, we stayed at this really high place that was like right on a, almost like a cliff. And one of the people who was very well respected, he, he found himself in a place where he was high up, kind of facing a cliff. 
And he panicked and just started cussing and cursing and just like this torrent of like foul mouth language pours out of his mouth. And all of us are like, whoa, what's going on here? And I, I, I won't forget that story because he had this veneer of being a good Christian guy. But then when it came to his moment of like being on this cliff and looking down, he was not calling on God. He was, like I said, just speaking all these expletives. There are millions and millions of people who observe religious practices that may be good, but don't really trust God deeply within. Where are you? In fact, anxiety and fear are very powerful ways to see where your faith is at. It is often the case that Jesus will speak of faith over here and then fear and anxiety over here as being like opposites. So I'll just read you a couple passages here. John 14, 1, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So he's saying, don't be over here in this place of, of your heart being troubled, which is like anxiety or fear. And instead, be over here, believe in God, believe in me. Very famous verse, Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So no anxiety, but instead have, your, have prayers and supplications with thanksgiving, the sense of joy. Let your requests be made known to God. All throughout the Old Testament as well. Very famous Psalm, Psalm 23. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So not fear, because why? Because I'm with God. Another one, Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Or what shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom or of what shall I be afraid? So again, like you can hear that contrast there, right? That fear and, and, so fear and, and anxiety over here are opposed to faith. And anybody who, who is, who's living in a place of, of fear or anxiety is not experiencing faith. As one author puts it, faith chases out fear or fear chases out faith. One other author says it well, little faith is always the result of a basic self-interest and an earth-centered perspective, thus producing fear. It must be remembered that the disciples cry out to Jesus for help. And so at the deepest level have a basic trust, but they also feel they're about to perish, so it is terror rather than faith that drives them. Okay, point number four. Beware of believing that Jesus is apathetic or indifferent when you are going through a trial. Beware of believing that Jesus is apathetic or indifferent when you are going through a trial. In Mark, I mentioned this same story is repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark words the question a little bit differently than the disciples asked to Jesus. I'm guessing Jesus got lots of questions from them. The way that Mark captures it is a disciple asked Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? That's how it's stated. There's a little bit of an edge to that, right? The assumptions that the disciples have in their question is that they're not supposed to face this life-threatening storm. The, the, the assumption that the disciples have is that Jesus is going to oversleep. The assumption that the disciples have is that somehow Jesus doesn't really care. 
the disciples have this assumption that this trial isn't really for their good. But of course, these are all very bad assumptions. We should never interpret a lack of sudden action on our timetable as a sign of God's indifference. Delay is not a sign of God's apathy. Okay, so again, I know there's a lot of trials that are variable, that have many different types in this room. How many of us are questioning God's wisdom, God's character even, by having you in this trial? How many of you are saying, I needed this to have happened yesterday? I can't imagine this going on for weeks, months, years. Delay is no sign of God's indifference. In fact, it is a sign of his love. I'll read a quote here from from Spurgeon, who says it well. Beloved, can you not believe in a silent God? Do you always want tokens from God? Must you be petted like a spoiled child? Is your God of such a character that you must mistrust him if his face be veiled. Can you trust him no further than you see him? In fact, Jesus has called his disciples into the storm to test them, to, to refine them, to make them better disciples, to expose their weaknesses, their lack of faith, and seeking to have them grow in their trust in him. So when you're going through a trial, any type of trial, pay extra attention to the insights and admonitions that you may receive. And watch your heart for what the disciples say. Don't you care that I'm perishing? If you're saying that, you're in a place of little faith. Remember the many times that God has helped you in the past. Don't forget the many Ebenezers that have marked your trail when you face this trial or the next. And of course, we should always meditate on the wounds and death of the Savior for you. Isn't it true that good parents don't always just swoop in? You know, there's that, there's that expression, helicopter parents, right? Helicopter parents are always just like swooping in, trying to make things better quickly. I've told the story, I think, once before. I'll tell it again because probably a lot of people weren't here. There was a, uh, I think it was a birthday where our children got a bunch of kites, neat little kites. I think my parents gave them these kites. And we decided to go to Revere Beach, just very close to here, 15 minutes from here, and fly these kites on one of our, we, we take Fridays off on one of our Fridays off. And so we assembled the kites, we had to put them all together and do all that work. And all excited, got in our minivan, drove over to Revere Beach, and flying the kites, beautiful kites with the streamers, and it was, just, it was a perfect day. They were holding the kites and having a blast. And Laura and I were sitting there, watching, just sitting on the sand, enjoying the, the beautiful ocean weather. And just then, I think it was you, <laughs> you, uh, it, was power, it was pretty strong winds, accidentally let go of the, of the kite handle. And those things move, right? And so this kite is just going down and he starts booking after this thing. And there's a, it was, I think it was a black handle, if I remember it right. So there's this kite that's going in this direction and the string is there and this is a little bike and he was running after this thing and it was like a couple feet away from him and he was just running as fast as he could, just outstretched hands. 
going and going and going. And I, I thought he was going to get it. But then the sand ended in a wall. There was just a cement wall. And he hit that wall and boom, the kite was gone. I'm thinking, oh, no. Like, you know, we had this kite for in use for maybe half an hour. And he was just devastated. He was devastated. And I was devastated. And I was just, oh, man, what are we going to do? And I just wanted to come in and say, okay, it's okay. We'll just go buy you a new kite and it'll be all right. And Laura and I were both there and just saying like, okay, what do we do? What do we do? And I thought to myself, okay, no, it's not the right thing to go in and just say we're going to buy a new kite here. And instead, Ethan, who's right over there, walks over to Luke and says, you can have my kite. And I thought, yes, so good. Such a better outcome in that than, you know, me coming in and saying, like, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy him this kite, right? And, and so often, you know, we interpret the delay as indifference or apathy, right? Now, this is a huge mistake. This is a, a cataclysmic mistake that we can make. We, we will go through very, very difficult seasons, periods of time that we are going to question God's care, God's character, God's presence, God's involvement. I recently read a story which I thought was, was, was really interesting and relevant here about a man named Bill Irwin. And Bill Irwin decided to hike the Appalachian Trail. So the Appalachian Trail, for those who don't know, starts in Georgia, and it goes all the way up to Maine. It's 2,100 miles. It's a serious hike. You have to go through all kinds of conditions, heat, rain, snow. Uh, Very difficult. Uh, He was not the first to do this, but he was the first person in history to do it because he was blind. Um, uh, He was the first blind person to ever do it. And he was 50 years old when he decided to set set out and do this in 1990 to set out on this hike. He was a recovering alcoholic. And he he made 2 Corinthians 5, 7, his line, for we walk by faith and not by sight. So he's blind, so he can't use maps. He can't use the normal tools that the rest of us would use. It was just Bill Irwin, his dog, and the terrain of the mountains. He estimates that he falls an average of 20 times a day for eight months. It took him eight months to do this. So if you work that out, he fell 5,000 times, battles hypothermia, cracked his ribs, numerous various injuries along the way, but he actually made it. He actually made it all this way. Blind person. No, nobody else there to help him. And I'll... And I'll uh, I was reading this in a book where the, the author made a, a really brilliant observation and said, you, you, all of us in the audience, are doing the same. Not on the trails of the Appalachians, but in the trails of life. You are not walking on the path between Georgia and Maine. You are walking on a road even steeper and longer. The path between offered prayer and answer prayer between supplication and celebration, between bent knees and lifted hands, tears of fear and tears of joy, between help me, Lord, and thank you, Lord. So we need to remember that this seeming 
stage where we are in this position of fear because it seems like God is sleeping is not at all a reflection of God's apathy or indifference, but instead a choice. This is something by design to make us better people, to sanctify us, to purify us, to refine us, as it says in 1 Peter 1, to grow our endurance, as it says in James 1. And I love how Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 49, 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. There is no bond stronger than that of a a mother and nursing child. And God is saying, they can forget. I'm not going to forget you. Okay, fifth and final point. Jesus reveals his deity and character through the storm. So I've said this several times now that Jesus's command, it was his idea for them to get into the storm. Why is this? Well, we talked about how discipleship comes from growth through trial. We said that trials reveal your character and what you really believe. They get to, they get to discover that they, in fact, are people of little faith. But I would say the, the highest and most important reason why Jesus wants them to have this experience is to have a deeper revelation about who Jesus is. Okay, so the storm, does it illuminate our character? Yes, absolutely. But it reveals even more who God is. This story is about teaching the disciples Christology, about who Jesus is, because your discipleship can only be as robust as your Christology. All throughout the Old Testament, there are these really great, beautiful Psalms. I'll read you a couple of them that picture the turbulent sea, this place of of tumult as being what, what God overcomes. So in Psalm 65, verses five to seven, it says, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far off seas, who establish the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. Psalm 89, verse, verses 8 to 9. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. It sounds a lot like this story. Listen to this one, Psalm 107, verses 28 to 30. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the, Lord, he calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. It's also similarly in Job 38, 8 to 11. So it's very clear here. Those descriptions were about what Yahweh, what the Lord does. Jesus is doing here what Yahweh or what God does. The key verse from this whole section, without any doubt, is that final line where the, the disciples, the people on the boat say, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? That's the point of this whole story is that, is that they, okay, they saw Jesus do healings, but now they're seeing him control nature itself, the forces of nature itself. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Even modern commentaries, I, I find this really um, strange. 
But so many modern commentaries, even evangelical commentaries, will believe the, the therapeutic miracles, but then they believe then they call these like legend or embellishment or something like that. They somehow think this is beyond the scope of what Jesus could accomplish. It, these non-therapeutic miracles, these miracles over nature, are yet a higher standard of, of power. When, when Jesus then says at the end of Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, that means a lot when you think about stories like this. So who can this person be? The person who teaches with authority, the Sermon on the Mount. The person who heals so mercifully, first part of Matthew 8. The person who sleeps so peacefully because he trusts in God. The, the person who commands the winds and the waves. The person who saves us. Who is this? Matthew already told us in chapter one that Jesus would be God with us. The with us God, Emmanuel. Who is he? It is God. He is God with us. He is our savior, our ever present help in trouble. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would give us an appreciation, uh, an endurance to, to welcome the storms, these, these opportunities that you have given us that are fearful, that are anxiety-producing in the flesh. But as we have confidence in you, we can lay our heads down and sleep. We can get right next to Jesus and, and lay our heads down on that pillow and treat that 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 boat that is being tossed as a cradle that is being rocked. Father, I pray that you would help us not merely to be obedient, but to be trusting, to have a a deep inward disposition of your, your goodness, that Jesus is indeed the with us God, Emmanuel, who is, is here to, to mediate your power for our benefit. I pray that we would not take any delays as a sign of indifference or apathy, but as a sign of your love. That 15 trillion years from now, when, you, when we look back at these moments, we will see them all as being just snaps of the fingers, just so brief, momentary and fleeting hardships that are scarcely even worth remarking on. I pray that we would also understand that it is trials that test our mettle, that expose who we really are, when we are the busiest, do you get the leftovers? When, when we are the most afraid, do we run to other comforts, other refuge? Do we, when we are perturbed, do we fall apart or do we, do we say, save us for we are yours? You have promised in your word that we would arrive at the haven in, in safety. I pray that you would increase our faith. May we not be the Oligopistoi, may we be those who uh, Jesus marvels over. We pray all these things in the name of the one who commands the winds and the waves. Amen. Amen.